Hi, thanks for joining. Welcome. And if you'd like to support your friendly local Buddhist pastor, the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC. The other ways uh, are on the website as well. And everything I do is supported by your donation. I don't charge for anything. So it's listener, practitioner supported. So tonight, tonight we're going to be talking about acceptance versus delusion uh, or fantasy in relationships. I hope that this will be of some interest. So without further ado, I'd like to start out in what might seem like a take a strange angle. For much of human history, we assumed that thought was what directed behavior. As Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. There was, there's this idea that thought is the director of the mind, our behavior, that it's kind of the center of the mental universe. And all of this began to crumble roughly the first, I would argue, big uh, chink in the wall was in the 1890s by the American psychologist William James, who noted that emotional reactions and behaviors aren't guided by thoughts at all, but are the results of fast, unconscious responses to stimuli that were very often are initiated before there's any thought at all. In other words, he noted that behavioral actions quite often precede thought. A few, a few years later, Freud noted that unconscious drives such as aggression and drives for pleasure frequently overwhelm conscious ego control and we act out neurotically. So once again, uh, this is about 120 years ago, this preliminary recognition that thought is not in many ways the director of behavior. But as time passed, psychology and neuroscience began to further chip away at the idea that thought plays a uh, instrumental role in how we act. In the 1960s, Michael Gazzaniga and his famous split brain uh, experiments showed that uh, countless arrays of behavior are guided by bottom-up right brain impulses that precede conscious choice and that, in fact, behavior tends to be something that's driven pre-consciously and then attributed by our left hemisphere broken Wernicke regions is something that they were in charge of, but in fact, that's not the case. This was uh, shown in a very wonderful clinical setting in the 1970s by Benjamin Labette, who showed that well before we make any choice in life, brain activity in the preconscious motor cortexes um, precede any choice. And so we don't think then act, we act 
and then we think and we think we we chose the action but actually it, much of the impulses precede thought every choice we make is preceded by an array of unconscious processes and it only seems like consciously we're in control now this all reaches a wonderful complex picture in the work of the great Robert Sapolsky at Stanford, who's probably the one of the most respected psychologists and behaviorists and neurologists of our time. And he's shown that every act or behavior is the result of a complex array of influences, very little of which have anything to do with free will. Millions of years before we act, there's evolutionary pressures that sculpt our genetic makeups, and these create or embed a vast array of survival behaviors. And then hundreds of years before we act, our cultures and heritages implant unconscious beliefs. And so, for example, in much like America and England and Italy, individuals who live in the North versus in the South can have vastly different views on what is moral behavior, what is integrity, what is what constitutes uh, a sense of honorable, and so forth, and so on. And then decades before we act, the traumas enacted on communities due to their race, their ethnicity, impact their autonomic nervous systems, and create embedded uh, emotional responses to stimuli before birth, we're exposed to hormones, uh, stress hormones in the prenatal environment, and that influences our adult behavior. But most importantly, on top of all this is childhood. Depending upon the type of relationship we have with our parents, uh, different types of survival and coping strategies are embedded and uh, wire the entire bottom-up survival and relationship behaviors that will guide us in uh, relationships and in interpersonal dynamics. Damasio, the great neuropsychologist, has shown that all of so many of these influences are expressed as feelings, nonverbal gut sensations, skin valence, tensing of muscles, changing in respiration. And these nonverbal cues express all of this history of experience and guide our behavior. And very little of our behavior is in fact organized by thought. In fact, the latest thinking in neuropsychology is the role of the frontal lobe is to inhibit action long enough to wait for another impulse to arrive, but that new impulse will still be something that is not thought of. It's something that just arises from very old survival or ingrained behavior. So um, uh, we don't act. What this means is we don't act in accordance with what we think. We act in accordance with how we feel. We don't think then act we feel, and very quickly these feelings turn into impulses 
and these impulses we act out and then we attribute these behaviors as something that we decided to do. But in fact, the entire process is uh, largely unconscious or pre-conscious. Feelings are shaped by events that can stem from millions of years ago in evolution, but primarily um, a huge influence on how we feel and our impulses stem from early childhood relational experiences from the first two years of life instilled by the child and parent dynamics known as the attachment period and uh, wherein tens of thousands of interactions between the child and the parent where the child seeks attention and then the parent either responds or doesn't respond. These wire the frontal lobe, especially the right hemisphere. And over time, these circuits become strengthened through repetition and what's called LTP, long-term potentiation. And over time, by the time we become adolescents, so much of the way we act in relationship is wired, is a set of circuits. And we have two different set of behavioral uh, repertoire or behavioral patterns. The first is the approach behaviors. And this is very often the kind of ways we act when we get to know someone, when they're new to us. Uh, In early friendships, early relationships, when we haven't had triggering experiences, we feel secure And we might project onto a new friend or a new um, relationship figure uh, all these positive desires and expectations were fueled by approach impulses of the left dopamine reward circuit, which is forward projecting from the midbrain. And so... At the beginning of relationship, we're governed by approach impulses, and we tend to idealize new people, new partners. And this gives birth to a whole suite of what can be very enticing behaviors. When people are new in relationships, they... um, In these approach behaviors, when they'll be open to new stimuli. They'll be exploratory. They'll be willing to do things that are new to them. They'll be able to uh, disclose at times information that they would normally withhold. And that's because we're in the presence of an enormous amount of dopamine and there hasn't been any triggering experiences yet. Over time, as a partner becomes familiar, the novelty wanes, the dopamine plummets, and eventually we have events that trigger early attachment wounds. So if in childhood we experienced a lot of neglect and abandonment, finally in a, in a partnership, well, of times where we feel unseen, unresponded to, disconnected, or if at times in childhood we felt engulfed the parents were helicopter parents, we felt controlled, then eventually there'll be experiences where we'll feel also similarly engulfed. And so we'll be triggered. 
and you know we might it might simply be facial expressions or uh, off the cuff remarks might seem critical to us and that might launch a sense of rejection stemming from childhood um, someone might show up when we don't expect them that might trigger a feeling of engulfment and so on what the point is, is that the original approach behaviors that can be so winning and adorable are now changed to a suite of behaviors that are governed by increasingly right hemispheric bottom up survival behaviors, no longer um, exploratory, open, uh, emotionally mirroring. Now we start to see people become unavailable. We start to see people become defensive. We start to see people become impatient. Um, they become emotionally dysregulated, overwhelmed, or at times they'll uh, start shutting down. So again, we have two different, um, I would say, uh, very vastly different sets of behaviors. Approach when we feel safe at the beginning of a relationship, when we're getting to know someone, when we're likely to project positive expectations. And then we have the negative uh, withdrawal impulses that are associated with times where our partner does or our friend or our work colleague does something that reminds us of the painful experiences of childhood. And in those occasions, we go into a withdrawal suite of behaviors where we disconnect, we become emotionally dysregulated, or we shut down, we become impatient, we no longer become exploratory, we want to control situations, and so on and so forth. So um, insecure or secure states are very, very different. But to try to change any behavior within these specific um, states is very often fruitless. If individuals, if you're with a partner or a friend who feels stressed out by events in their life or unappreciated or engulfed, to try to, exp you know, state that what they're doing is causing you suffering or disappointment or stress. Um, while that's very much a natural desire to um, speak about behaviors, specific behaviors that we find uh, challenging in another, it actually is frequently born of the fantasy that we can pick and choose which behaviors in a partner we can change. And it doesn't actually understand the psychological nuances that in fact, behaviors are wired complexly, and they form an entire inextricably, inextricably woven set of behaviors that we just can't treat like items in a grocery cart we want to throw out. Both approach and retreat behaviors are part of an inseparable whole. So we might have uh, one person in a relationship who likes to be social 
and the other might be introverted. And the introvert might view their partner's socializing as too needy or form of weakness. But if they try to change their partner's desire for socializing, they're going to be wasting an enormous amount of time because their partner's need for social connection is is wired by an countless tens of thousands of childhood experiences where they felt safer if they were connected with people. And if a partner, for example, suddenly shuts down when they're stressed out, if we try to get them to start expressing their feelings, that's an understandable desire, but their tendencies to shut down can be wired by countless childhood experiences of shaming or overwhelm and to expect change or expect that we can uh, tell someone that some behavior of theirs is uh, uh, isn't likable by us in some way or we find un uh, unappealing uh, shows a psychological naivete, a lack of acceptance. We are creatures that have been wired well before we encounter each other. And our behaviors, especially our behaviors under stress, are emotionally wired survival mechanisms that are very, very, very resistant to change. And in fact, if you talk to any uh, therapist in my field or any psychologist, they will tell you just how long and difficult it can be to change even the most, um, even a single relational behavior, because the Circuits that govern the behaviors in relationships, not only were they wired decades before we got into a relationship, but they're organized in regions of the brain, such as the right orbital frontal, especially that's the key region Alan Shore showed, that is resistant to change, that is not reachable by language, um, that you can't appeal to consciously, if we voice our, our, the fact that we're unhappy with another's behavior, what will invariably occur is they'll defend, they'll call attention to behaviors of us, our own actions that they find egregious, or they'll issue fast assurances, but the behaviors will persist. I want to state very clearly that it's entirely appropriate to say to another human being, when you do X, when you disappear, don't return calls, I feel abandoned. That's fine. And that's appropriate because a huge part of emotion co-regulation is to express our internal states to another. And that is a very adaptive milestone that we reach and we need to be able to do that. But if we state that someone does something that we find upsetting or abandoning and we expect them to change, 
then we have moved into a territory where we are very, very likely to experience an enormous amount of frustration and disappointment to change relational behaviors, the kind of behaviors that individuals act out in core friendships or in attachment scenarios requires years and years and years of change where a therapist slowly recognizes what kind of situations make a client feel safe and depending upon their individual needs and fears. And over time, the individual very slowly is guided towards choosing safe workplaces, choosing safer interpersonal dynamics. And only over a long period of time when someone feels safe are those withdrawal, retreat, disconnect behaviors, do those begin to change? And people slowly, slowly, slowly move into uh, a new set of explore and connect behaviors. But it doesn't happen because we ask for it. (laughs) Uh, You might want to reflect on all the stress-activated emotional behaviors that we do in our life despite knowing better. For example, in my case... When I'm really hungry, I can still I can overorder, you know, at a restaurant, despite knowing that I often do that. When I'm hungry, I overorder, but I'll still do it because that emotionally wired behavior stems from my childhood when I was stressed out you know, or when stressful times would happen in my family, my mom might take us out to dinner and she'd just say, order whatever you want. And that would make me feel safe. So when I'm stressed out, despite all of my knowledge that that's a tendency and that it's not helpful, I'll still fall into it. I can be mindful. I can notice the feelings and impulses. Sometimes I'll order less, but very often I'll still fall into that behavior. Another emotional behavior that's pretty deeply entrenched in me is when I'm in a social situation and I'm meeting someone new and I feel their attention waning, I'll very often start to try to, I'll get nervous and try to keep their attention by changing the subject or speaking more or something like that. This is not behavior that actually gets somebody to like you or pay attention. It actually very often can just feel overwhelming. But despite knowing that, I still have that impulse to talk more and try to entertain someone whose attention I'm losing. So if I can't and you can't even change the emotional behaviors that you know aren't healthy, but you still do them, how in the world can we expect someone else to change for us simply because something they do we find inconvenient? It doesn't happen. Emotional behaviors are deeply, deeply wired. If you want to change someone's uh, withdrawal behaviors, you first have to go through an entire long duration of changing all the dynamics of that person's life to the point where they feel safe in 
their relationships. And then you might slowly over time start to see a different uh, suite of uh, engaging, more rewarding behaviors emerge. Um, so um, the fact that individuals are rarely capable of changing can be very, very painful for us. As infants, when we didn't get our needs met by crying or throwing tantrums, because early on in life as infants, there was a period as babies where whenever we cry, a parent would intervene and bring us food or a blanket or take care of us. But then there's a point in childhood where we cry and there's no response. Our parents are worn down. Uh, they're not, they're no longer emotionally available. And as children, we experience this as a, um, as a, as a really threatening, overwhelming experience when previously met needs are no longer met. And we can emerge from our childhood that if only we could talk to our parents, get across our needs, that they would change and be the parents we want them to be when, even when they're stressed out. And this can turn into a very durable, lasting fantasy. In one relationship after another, after another, we can linger in this kind of idea that our partner's behaviors are like items in a shopping cart. And if we don't like one item, we can just take it out and throw it away or get rid of it. And the rest of the items will remain. But that's not the way human minds actually work. All of the behaviors are wired together. Um, and if we believe that people choose how they act rather than understand that their actions are wired from childhood interactions that occurred decades before we met them, we'll take their behavior personally. We'll um, we'll, we'll feel that they are choosing not to return our call. They're choosing to become impatient. They're choosing or deciding to be critical. When again, it's not personal. All of these behaviors, especially individuals' behaviors under stress, are wired by some, and are attached to some of the most ancient circuits of the brain stemming from the amygdala and fight-flight circuits associated with the uh, HPA axis of the brain. And so these are not behaviors that are amenable to requests or demands. There's a Buddhist allegory I've always liked. There's a story of a monk who decides to meditate alone from the hubbub of his monastery. So he takes a rowboat out to the middle of the lake and he moors it there and he meditates. And after a good 25 minutes of meditation uh, where his silence is undisturbed, suddenly there's this sudden jolt to the rowboat and he's shaken out of his tranquility and what's happened is another boat has collided with his boat. And with his eyes still closed, frustration arises and he decides to tell off 
the person in the other boat that slammed into him and ruined his meditation. But when he opens his eyes, he sees that the boat that slammed into him is actually empty, that it became untethered from the dock and simply floated out to the middle of the lake and rammed into his boat. But there was no one steering the ship. Now, this is very often seen as an allegory about the fruitlessness of being angry, but that's actually an incomplete interpretation. Actually, um, a more complete interpretation is that when we believe that people are doing things to us consciously, we're falsely attributing behavior to consciousness. And in fact, behavior is not largely conscious. It's organized by pre-conscious circuits that stem from some of the most, at times, ancient regions of the brain. So people are very often not consciously deciding how to act. They're like empty rowboats that just happen to yell or disappear on us. And it's not because of anything innate to us. It's simply that's the way they were wired wired by childhood, wired by evolution, wired by their culture, wired by events that happened decades before we met them. So once we start to accept that behavioral patterns are resistant to change, then we start to develop mature strategies for how to relate to friendships and how to relate to relational partners. And it's all based on an overall concept of acceptance rather than living in the fantasy that we can change someone. The first most crucial form of acceptance is if someone exhibits unsafe, aggressive behaviors, or at any point becomes wildly intoxicated or disappears for an extremely untenable period of time, then we have to fully accept that those behaviors are part of their repertoire. And we have to fully accept that and not be in any delusion that they that won't happen again. Once a withdrawal behavior, such as intoxication or aggression, uh, fight, flight, disappearing is initiated, if it's beyond a duration or to an intensity we are not comfortable with, we have to accept that that is who that person is and not linger or stay around in the hopes that somehow that will never happen again. That's, I can tell you, in <coughs> 18 years of counseling, when somebody suddenly disappears or becomes emotionally dysregulated or aggressive, it will invariably happen again and again because behaviors are not, especially under stress, isolated events. They are part of patterns that, again, were wired and are resistant to change. So um, when we know this, we can decide very quickly if someone is actually of the material or of the kind of person that we want to uh, in any way develop any degree of reliance or any degree of 
um, emotional bonding. If someone sometimes becomes unavailable or uh, emotionally dysregulated, but it's not to an intensity that's overwhelming to us, we, again, don't try to change those behaviors. We accept that this is part of who they are, and we find other individuals, other friends who can support us during the times that our partners or the, our, the specific friend we're talking about isn't emotionally available. But to try to tell someone not to disappear on us, not to, uh, to have this fantasy of a conversation where we can change their behavior is, again, to not understand the nature of withdrawal behaviors and how behaviors originate in human beings. When we stop viewing behaviors as separable, we don't see behaviors as groceries we can take out of another person's cart, that they're part of an interwoven whole. Then we also begin to understand that annoying traits can also be inextricably connected to endearing traits. For example, someone who is always focused on their needs and their needs being met also might very often be excellent at taking care of themselves. They might require very little maintenance. They might be someone that uh, is very capable of knowing when they're uh, becoming dysregulated. They might be very uh, capable of auto-regulation. Someone, on the other hand, who checks out and needs to spend a period every night watching TV or, or just uh, on social media, and during those times, we might feel a little abandoned, but those people also might require less emotional support at times. They also might be capable of processing on their own stressful experiences. People who are very didactic uh, might be people who are also very capable of interesting conversations. You, we can't pick specific behaviors out and think that that will not completely disrupt the entire <clears throat> uh, complexity uh, because all these behaviors are woven together. There's a simile in Buddhism of a blind man who stumbles upon an elephant or a group of blind men, but I'll just use one blind man. And at first they feel the trunk. And so they think what they've stumbled upon is a tree and then or they leg, they find, they think it's a tree, then they feel the ear and they think, oh, it's a fan. And then they find the, the you know, another part. And then, but finally they get to the tail <laughs> and they're like, oh, I don't like this. It's moving around a lot. Sometimes shit is coming out of the hole next to it. I want to get rid of the tail. I don't like the tail, but that's not the way it works. We're just getting an entire picture of the whole person. When we practice acceptance in relationships, we set boundaries rather than waste time trying to change specific behaviors or views. If you have a friend who it turns out happens to, uh, I don't know, be an anti-vaxxer, God forbid, or uh, someone who's got very unappealing far right wing views, we don't waste time trying to change 
their opinion or even trying to stop them. We simply disconnect or we change the subject and we make it very clear, I'm not going to engage on this topic. So we're not anymore trying to change another person. We're acknowledging that a certain part is not something where we feel safe. And we just disconnect during those parts. And then we come back and we might say to someone, okay, let's stop talking for a while. Let's change the subject. If it's a friend, we might say, okay, I'm going to get off the phone. I'll call you tomorrow. But we don't waste time saying, I don't like it when you voice your political opinions or when you, uh, when you, you become impatient with me or when, you, when your voice raises. We simply say, okay, I've got to stop. I'll come back later. We don't try to change the behavior. We, we simply set boundaries. Um, when friends or partners are in retreat mode, we put the work in to connect with other people who are available. One of the classic mistakes that uh, especially people with anxious attachment make is that they'll meet someone, they'll become excited, and then when something, <clears throat> when they need their partner and their partner isn't available, instead of reaching out to other friends and and really revitalizing those friendships and keeping those friendships active, they'll keep going back to the person that's not available. We call this going to, at times, um, the hardware store for orange juice. The key is to go to a grocery store for orange juice, not to try to get someone to change, to understand when they're not available, it's my job to go to someone else and be patient. Uh, many, many people I have known over the years that I maintain decades of friendships with, but I also understand that there are times where the needs won't be met. Well, they're either disappeared or be stressed out or shut down or emotionally dysregulated or focusing on other uh, needs in their life. And it's my job not to take it personally, not to try to change their behavior, but to go to people who are available and get my needs met there. The key in all this is to remember that all behaviors are expressions of a tapestry of unconscious processes, that they're not separable, that they're wired decades before we meet others, that change is a profoundly, profoundly long-term uh, process that doesn't involve making demands or requests. People only change when we completely create environments where they feel safe in their life. And if they don't feel safe in a relationship, it can take years of EFT couples counseling, for example, for them to start feeling safe, for them to learn how to neurocept safety. Finally, I would like to know that it was my good fortune in, uh, in the, from 2000 to roughly 2008 or nine, I spent 
a lot of time studying and hanging around Buddhist renunciates, nuns and monks. And it occurred to me how, from observing them, how very often skillful they were in relationships, how, and these were individuals who were trained in their, during the time they were novice renunciates, when they were new to the path, one of the parts of being trained is nuns and monks are very often out of the blue without any warning told to go to a new monastery with new people without any preparation. And they have to learn how to quickly connect with new people and get needs met. They know how to let go. They can be sad, but then they constantly keep in mind the long process of making new connections. And one of the things about Buddhist renunciates is that they're invariably warm when they meet you, but they never get excited at the beginning of a new relationship. They never fantasize. They never build up expectations. They are observing you like a scientist who's observing a gorilla in the wild, and they're trying to find out what kind of, you know, gorilla or, or animal are we. And they don't go into it ever with the agenda of, oh, I'm going to, I don't like the way that gorilla eats their banana. They are simply observing, taking it all in, never getting excited, never projecting about futures. They're indominantly present and just observing and not moving relationships too fast, not building up expectations. They are researching and taking it all in. And that, for me, embodies a lot of acceptance-based relational behavior. So thanks for listening to that talk. I hope that something in there was interesting, uh, provoked some thoughts. And now we're going to do a meditation where we're going to first allow a lot of that just to settle. And then we'll practice a little bit of the process of emotion regulation, distress tolerance, so that during times in relationships when we feel abandoned, we will be more capable of being with the experience rather than uh, trying to change people. So find a comfortable seated position and just whatever you do, stop looking at the screen just look away, close your eyes, or look at something that's soothing in your environment. It could be a plant or a window, some piece of art. Look at something, if you want, that settles your attention, or close your eyes and bring your attention into your body and then lower it so that you don't feel your attention to be sitting 
behind your eyes, between your ears, but rather you feel awareness slowly seeping down into your body, much like, uh, I don't know, a person bringing a flashlight into the basement for the first time in years. There's nothing scary in this basement, just in the case of a body, just sensations, the breath, and feelings of clenching and release and muscle groups, skin valence, tightening and releasing, various muscles twitching or relaxing. At this point, we don't want to try to change or get rid of any sensation, just welcome it all, but bring your attention to some part of your internal experience that feels really good. Something that feels easeful or a part of the body that doesn't feel tight. And try to, if you can find that peaceful sensation, try to spread it. If that's available, using the exhalation, just see if you can spread the ease. So if you feel, for instance, a sense of ease in some area of the palms of your hands or maybe... around the neck or some other area, if you feel any sense of release, just use each exhalation to try to spread that ease and comfort. The Buddha and one of the most primary meditations talked about using our attention and our breath to spread pleasant sensations, 
So the entire body, or if not the entire body, at least more of the body over time feels really comfortable. Try to relax and release any habitual tension that builds up over time. You might find that your shoulders are maybe slightly clenched when they don't need to be. Maybe they can be rolled back and then released and can drop a little further away from the ears. Or maybe many of us have this tendency of tightening our abdomens. Sometimes we're taught early or various points in our life that it's attractive to hold in our bellies. But in a meditation, you want to do the opposite. When you want to relax, you want to soften, release your belly. No one's looking. So really indulge and just allow yourself to find what feels really comfortable. If you have a, tension, a tendency to clench your jaw in any way, just try to release that. Sometimes there might even be some furrowing of the brow or something that we over time habitually ingrain until it becomes a default setting. But we want to use our practice as a time where we can soften, And wherever it's feasible or possible to release some of the holding patterns. If it's difficult to stay internal, you can either count the breath One on the in, two on the out, three on the next in-breath, four on the next out. When you get to five, on the seceding in-breath, start counting down. Four on the out-breath, three on the in, two on the out. So you're counting up from one to five and back down. Or if you prefer, just listen to the sounds in your environment without adding any stories or visuals to what's creating the sound. We'll just sit here quietly for a while. Every time your attention wanders off into a thought, that's fine. Focus on rewarding yourself and feeling good each time you realize that you've 
gotten lost in a thought, a memory, a plan, or a virtual reality we create. And then just reward yourself with a nice, warm, long, full in-breath and out-breath. Smiling with gratitude, if that's available, that you've returned home to the present. Never judging ourselves for getting lost. That's just part of the training, part of the practice, part of the joy of meditation is to get lost and then come back home to the present.
So at this point, if you'd like to continue just being with the sensations of the body, soothing and relaxing, that's fine. Or if you want to practice a distress tolerance tool, at this point, bring to mind a behavior in a an important relationship with someone that uh, in some way is disappointing, a behavior that you wish you could change or somehow if you could reach into your friend or partner's brain, you wish you could wire differently and see if you can really hold in mind an image, if that's available to you, that represents this recurring tendency trait It could be as innocuous as someone who leaves towels or is messy or doesn't do the dishes or someone who could be more activating traits associated with the time someone being Curt or controlling or uh, critical, sarcastic, that comes up now and then when they're stressed or overwhelmed or frightened. And while you visualize this behavior, see if you can soften your belly. Breathe slowly. Release any tension or tightness that's begun to encroach. See if you can remind yourself that This is not something they're choosing to do. This is just the way they've been programmed to act by so many thousands of interactions that preceded our friendship or relationship. That it's not personal. And moreover, that it doesn't define who they are just as there are these difficult traits, there are so many positive traits that initially made our connection so rewarding. And see if in relaxing the body, we can accept this person for the entirety without any agenda of changing them. without any agenda of changing, just fully accepting 
this as part of an inextricable whole, just as the endearing parts You can now be with this image of the trait that is challenging in your partner, your friend, relaxing into this acceptance that none of this is about you. None of this is personal. This is just how they respond in certain times. And now let go of that image and just take your time and return your awareness back to the sensations and settings that surround you. (laughs) 